Good morning, MC Arlington. I'm Archbishop Joe Carter. One of the, <laughs> I'm one of the pastors for our location. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning on Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, I've been looking forward to today, an opportunity I get to preach a message about politics. In fact, I get to preach a radical political sermon this morning. Uh, because I knew such a message would be controversial and easily misunderstood, I wrote two versions of the sermon. Um, and I wanted to deliver one based on how you might react to it. So the first sermon was rather short. I plan to read the passage from Mark 11, 1 through 11 today, and then explain what it means. And we can explain what that passage means in a mere nine words. Jesus Christ is king, and the king has come. I preach that sermon, and then I wait to see what kind of reaction I get. Ideally, we'd have an audible gasp, and then a stunned silence. And everybody would jump up and cheer. And then I'd just call the band back on. We'd sing a few more songs, and we'd all go to lunch. And we'd talk about that message. Jesus Christ is king, and the king has come. And how that changes everything. But that's not the sermon I'm going to give today. Because that's not the reaction I would get. And I know that's not the reaction I'd get, because that's not the reaction you gave. But I also know that's not the reaction I would have to that message. So why wouldn't we all gasp and cheer at hearing that King Jesus is here, has come? I think there are two reasons. The first possible reason is that it wouldn't be surprising because you're used to it. After all, every sermon at NBC is political and radical. As my friend Jonathan Lehman, a pastor in D.C., says, every week a preacher stands up to preach, he makes a political speech. And what he means is that every sermon a preacher is teaching the congregation to observe all that King Jesus commands. The preacher is telling us how to be shaped by the king's laws and how we are to carry out the king's mission. Every sermon we preach here at NBC is a political sermon because every sermon we preach at NBC is about King Jesus. And I wish that was the reason for our underwhelming reaction, but I suspect there's another reason. The second reason is that we become numb to the claim that Jesus is king. Here that Jesus Christ is king is no longer radical, no longer seems political. It seems like something we see on a t-shirt in a Christian bookstore, not something that would be subversive and that would frighten people. It's now seen as a cute message that most folks smile at politely rather than a subversive message that can overthrow the world. Those who oppose Christianity might roll their eyes if you say Jesus is king, but they aren't going to be all that threatened by the message. They don't get the sense that we Christians believe it, so why should they fear it? We Christians may be able to say, in some vague sense, that we know that Jesus Christ is king, but what does that really mean? Maybe someday in the future, in the distant future, when Jesus comes back, it may be meaningful, but right now, today, it's just a mere metaphor. We don't fully appreciate or understand what it means for Jesus to be king or what it means for our lives. And that's why this sermon has to be a bit longer than nine words. If, like me, the second reason applies to you, hope you'll leave here today with a better understanding of what it means for Jesus to be king, a better understanding of what his kingship means for your life, and a greater appreciation and willingness to serve him as king. Before we begin, though, let me pray for our time together. Lord Jesus, 
Thank you for allowing us to come together this morning to worship you. As we read your holy word, we ask you to open our eyes and soften our hearts so we can see the beauty and truth within your scripture. Help us to see the truth about you so that we will respond in a way that brings you honor and glory. Show us how to apply the lessons from your word so we might better follow you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn in the book of Mark, chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying this colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. If we just focus on the details, this passage may seem rather insignificant. And we might wonder why Mark would bother to include this in his gospel. But if we feel that way, it's because we don't understand how this connects to the broader storyline of the Bible. And the sad reality is, we don't know the Bible that all that well. And because we don't know the Bible, we often miss the allusions and references that are within the text. And unfortunately, we don't bother to take time to learn the Bible. I'm guilty of this myself. I watched 30 episodes of some TV show on Disney Plus just so I can watch a Marvel movie that's coming out in the summer. But I won't take the time to flip over a couple of pages and see how another passage illuminates a passage that seems unclear or unimportant. And because we don't know scripture, I'm going to have to quote from a lot of other passages in the Bible this morning. We need to do that to understand what is going on in this passage so that we can see how it connects to the broader storyline of scripture. And there are three things in particular we need to fully grasp what is going on in this passage. First, we need to understand how the symbolism in the details. Second, we need to understand what the crowd was doing and why they were doing it. And third, we need to understand what the crowd thought was happening and what Jesus was really doing. And if we take time to understand the details and the symbolism in this passage, we can begin to see why this event is so significant. Now, it may not seem obvious from the text you just read, but this is a description of one of the most important political events in all of human history. That's why all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mention this scene, which is often referred to as the triumphal entry. And if we look at what all four writers say about this and look at the details, we get a clear picture of what happens and why it matters. Let's start something that happened before in the passage that just came before this in Mark chapter 10. Now, Eric preached about this last Sunday and about how he mentioned how the blind beggar Bartimaeus referred to Jesus as the son of David. A son of David was a title for the Messiah. The word Messiah is the equivalent of Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus the Messiah. 
And the term Messiah referred to the long-awaited king that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And before this point in the book of Mark, that title had never been used for Jesus. But notice that Jesus didn't deny that a title applied to him. Then in this chapter, we see something similar. Both Matthew and Mark highlight the fact that people are using language that makes it clear they too think that Jesus is the son of David. And another detail that Mark mentions is that Jesus and his disciples went through the town of Bethany. And that was the town where Lazarus lived, died, and lived again. This was the town where the crowd would know that because they had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They knew the power of God that was within Jesus. And they knew this man probably had the power of the Messiah. And again, we see that Jesus also doesn't deny he's the son of God, which irritates the religious leaders of the day. As Luke says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replies, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And we see the same thing in the gospel of Matthew, which highlights that Jesus is the Messiah. And in the gospels of John and Luke, because they're speaking to an audience that includes a lot of non-Jews, they focus on Jesus as the coming king. So putting this all together, we see the passage announcing that Jesus is the Messiah and the King. We then start seeing details that highlight the symbolic nature of the Lord's actions. For instance, all four Gospels mention that Jesus sends his disciples to go retrieve a colt for him. And he retrieves a colt for him to go ride on. Now this itself is a rather surprising detail because nowhere else in the Gospel do we see Jesus riding. When on the sea, he occasionally rides in a boat but even on the water, he walked. We never hear of him riding in a cart or on a horse or taking any kind of land transportation, except for now. And this is the first and only time that we see Jesus riding in the Gospels. And why then is he riding into Jerusalem? Because as both Matthew and John make clear, Jesus is, is pointing out that he is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. In that passage of Zechariah, we read, Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now notice how Zechariah describes this scene and the words he uses. Daughter Zion implies, implies a family relationship. A daughter Zion is the daughter of God, the father. And at that time, the people who could be claimed to be daughter Zion were the faithful believers in Israel. But we now know that meaning has expanded. Daughter Zion includes all the disciples from all time that put their faith in Jesus and have become children of God. As John 1.3 tells us, the Father has loved us so much that we are called children of God and we really are his children. Also, as Hebrew 2.11 says, both the one who makes people holy, that would be Jesus, and those who are made holy, that would be those of us who put our faith in Jesus, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. God is our father, and Jesus is our brother. The king that is coming in this passage is our brother Jesus, and he's coming riding on a donkey. Now, at that time, a donkey was a symbol of peace. The man who walked everywhere is riding a donkey because he's sending us a message. And the message he's sending us is, I am your king who comes in peace, and I come to bring you peace. This is our first clue that Jesus is going to be unlike any other king in history. 
He's not like the violent kings of the ancient empires of Assyria, Babylon, and Rome. He is, as Isaiah had prophesied, the prince of peace. In the ancient world, kings and conquerors would come riding into town on a war horse, an animal that was fierce and threatening. But here comes King Jesus, gentle and riding a donkey, the symbol of peace. So now we have a fuller picture of the one of what is going on in Mark 11. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, our gentle and peaceful brother. Now, gentle may seem an odd term to use for this king. Because in the very next passage, we see Jesus taking a quart of whips and driving out the cattle from the temple courts. And he's overturning the tables of the money changers. And whatever we call that, that's probably not the first thing that wouldn't come to mind is gentle. But Jesus affirms that he is gentle. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And we are confused by this because we don't often associate gentleness with assertiveness. We're used to people who are self-assertive, who are asserting their own rights and their own privileges. And those people tend to be anything but gentle. Jesus, though, is both gentle and assertive, but he's not self-assertive. When he acts in an aggressive manner, it's not to assert his own rights. It's to promote the cause of the weak, the needy, or the will of his father. He is a servant king who comes to serve his people and serve the will of his father in heaven. Jesus is assertive and gentle in the way that many good mothers are. Have you ever known a mother who has what's often called the mama bear mentality? They may be the gentlest woman you know, but you come up and slap their kid, and you're instantly going to see them change their attitude. They may even be the type of woman you could heap abuse on, but you hurt their kids, and they become anything but gentle and peaceful. They flip over into warrior mode. Our Lord is the same way. He's our peaceful king and our gentle brother. And like every good brother, every good older brother, he's not like let anybody hurt us. We need that kind of king. We need a king who is gentle because we are weak. In Matthew 12, 20, Jesus quotes what Isaiah said about the Messiah. A bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed is someone who is spiritually, emotionally, physically, or morally weak. That's me. I'm a bruised reed. I'm a weak person. And I suspect that you may be too. Those of us who are weak can take comfort in knowing we have a king that is gentle. His gentleness means he's not going to take advantage of our weakness. He's not going to harm us. He's not going to use his strength against us. Jesus is the gentle king that we didn't even know we needed. And how did people respond to the triumphal entry of this gentle king? When the king came riding in on a donkey, the original crowd began shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Now, Hosanna was an Aramaic term that meant, Lord, save us. The people shouting Hosanna were using the words of Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, the crowd was right to cheer Jesus and praise him as the king and Messiah. But when they're asking to be saved, they're not asking to be saved from their sins. They're asking to be, after the nation to be saved 
from occupation of the Roman Empire. The crowd is shouting and laying garments and branches on the ground as a sort of red carpet. And this was an homage to the coronation of King Jehu that was mentioned in the second Kings. After Jehu was crowned king, people threw their garments on the ground for the new king to walk on. And the crowds laying down their garments before Jesus expected him to be another King Jehu. King Jehu was appointed by God to kill King Ahab, the worst king in all of Israel's history. And the crowd likely expected that Jesus would come to clean up the Roman mess, just as King Jehu came to clean up Ahab's mess. And the Gospel of John also includes the detail that the branches the people were laying down in front of Jesus were palm branches. And that gives us another significant clue to what is going on and what the people think is going to happen next. And during the time of Jesus, the Jewish people had been living under Roman occupation for almost a century. And the people longed for a time about 150 years earlier when a priest named Judas Maccabeus had led a successful revolt for Jewish independence. And after the Maccabees came to power, the palm branch became a national symbol of freedom. There's even a passage in a book called First Maccabees that was written about 100 BC, probably about 70 years before this event, that says, the Jews entered the citadel with shouts of praise, the waving of palm branches, the playing of harps and cymbals and lyres, the singing of hymns and canticles, because the great enemy of Israel had been crushed. That sound familiar? It's almost the same scene as in Mark 11. But in Mark 11, the crowd's anticipating the enemies of Israel will be crushed. And the crowd was waving palm branches and singing hymns and shouting praise because they thought Jesus was another Judas Maccabeus. The crowd thought that they was tossing cloaks and palm branches at the feet of Jesus because they wanted a Messiah who would rescue them politically and free them nationally. But the kingdom being ushered in that day wasn't what they were expecting, and it wasn't what they had been hoping for. They wanted national salvation while Jesus came to save them spiritually. The crowd shouting, save us, thought that their greatest need was national salvation, to be a save from their political oppressors. But Jesus knew there was something they needed even more. As theologian D.A. Carson says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. God sent King Jesus to make children of God out of God's enemies. God sent King just to make, take sinners from every earthly nation and make them citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The Father sent King Jesus to, to us to be what we needed most, a savior who could save us from sin and death. God sent something greater than a national savior. And yet the people, as we'll see later in the book of Mark, were frustrated and disappointed. Renee Schlaffer points out that the people waving palm branches gave Jesus an identity that wasn't his. They wanted a warrior priest like Maccabeus. They gave him an agenda that wasn't his, the overthrow of the Roman rule. They gave him a schedule that wasn't his. Overthrow Rome right now. And when they got upset, when his plan wasn't their plan, how often do we do the same thing? 
Do you ever give Jesus an identity that he isn't his? Expecting him to be what you want rather than letting him be who he is. Do you want Jesus to be the savior who opposes your political enemies and saves your nation? Do you want a Jesus who saves you from discomforts and pain and disappointment? Or do you ever give Jesus an agenda that isn't his? Have you ever thought to yourself, if Jesus really loves me, he'll make sure I get that promotion or he'll make sure I get that marriage proposal I've been waiting on. Would you prefer Jesus adopt your agenda rather than you adopting his agenda? Or do you give Jesus a schedule that isn't his? Do you say, I need you to heal my body right now. I need you to heal me now, Jesus, not later, not sometime in the future, and certainly not at the, when the, my time on earth is through. Heal me right now. Or do you tell him that there's some other desire of your heart that needs to be filled right now? Do you commit to trusting him and following him, but only on the condition that he will act within your preferred time frame? Have you ever said or thought anything like that? If so, then you're like the crowds who were following Jesus into Jerusalem that day. And you may even have the same reaction to Jesus that they had. You just quietly ghost him. We often hear that the, the crowds are shouting, Hosanna on Palm Sunday. We're shouting, crucify him on Good Friday. But I don't think that's true. I expect that a handful of people may have done that. But I think most of the people that were throwing palm branches on Sunday had, by the end of the week, just walked away in disappointment. They didn't hate Jesus, and they certainly didn't want to see him killed by crucifixion. They just didn't have any use for him anymore. He couldn't deliver what they want, so what did they need him for? I don't think the people in the crowd, who Luke describes as a crowd of disciples, were standing at the foot of the cross shouting, crucify him. I suspect instead on that Friday, they were more likely in the marketplace talking about how much Jesus could have been if he'd just been a little more bold. Or what a disappointment Jesus turned out to be. Or maybe they were probably, most likely, they were just sitting at home not thinking about Jesus at all. He was the king they needed, but he was not the king they wanted. How often he's the king that we need, but not the king we want? How often do we respond by just quietly ghosting him? Some of us do that every week. We'll come on Sundays and we'll praise and raise our hands, but by Friday, we forgot all about him. He's not being what we want or doing what we want or doing what we want on our timeline. So Jesus just slips our minds. And we go on about our lives, not as subjects of a king, but as people who can get by on their own and we can take care of our own interests. I do that all too often. But I don't want to continue to live that way. What thing can we do to change that attitude? Or we can take advantage of good news that we have and that we've heard. We know more than the crowds following him into Jerusalem did. We know what appeared to be a tragic defeat on the hill of Calvary was actually the greatest victory in the history of the earth. Indeed, what happened on Calvary that day was the greatest event to ever occur on our planet. We know more than the fickle crowd on the first Palm Sunday because we've seen Easter Sunday. And we can use that knowledge to choose a different path in following Jesus. So here, very briefly, are three things we can do. First, 
Remind yourself why God the Father sent King Jesus to us. Now, there are three verses in particular that can remind us of why God sent our King. First, John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Second, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might be, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And third, Psalm 16.11 tells us that in the presence of God there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. If we put those three verses together, we find that God loved us so much that he sent a king to suffer and die on our behalf so that we, the unrighteous, could be brought to the Father to enjoy eternal life, fullness of joy, and pleasures forevermore. That's not just good news. That's the greatest news you will ever hear. The second thing you should do is remind yourself daily what Jesus accomplished on the cross and how he has rescued you from sin. As the author of Hebrew tells, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that we might be forgiven. And by constantly reminding ourselves of the price that was paid and how our God had to suffer and die so that we might be forgiven, it should motivate us to flee from sin. And no matter how long we are Christians, we never outgrew that truth. And we never outgrow the need to be reminded of that truth. And when we first come to Christ, we come in repentance. We ask forgiveness for what Jesus had, uh, we have done and pledge to King Jesus that we'll serve him as Lord and Savior. And when we do that, all our sins are forgiven. All our past is put, put behind us. But that's the first time we do it. And as we go through life, we continue to sin. We constantly need to repent. We constantly need to seek God's grace. We need to remind ourselves that it is by grace alone through faith alone that we are saved and that salvation is a free gift from God. That salvation is nothing we can earn. Jesus paid it all. When we remember this truth, it changes how we live. For example, it will motivate us to forgive others. We'll forgive those who have wronged us, whether they're enemies in our family or our political enemies. And we won't do it to try to earn God's favor. We will do it because we have gratitude for the forgiveness he's given us. And finally, there's a third thing we need to do to recognize Jesus for who he really is. He is your God and your king. Jesus is your king and you are his disciple. That is your primary political identity. You are a disciple of the king of kings. That identity should be more important to you than any other political label. In fact, it should shape and challenge and critique any other political label you adopt. Also, when your primary political identity is as a disciple of a king, the king, it changes your relationship to other people. Those people on the other end of the political spectrum, on the left-right political spectrum, the people that you consider your enemies, if they are faithful Christians who are serving King Jesus, then you have more in common with them politically than you do with the people who vote the same way you do. Jesus is our king, and we are citizens of his kingdom. His kingdom is the range of his effective will. That means his kingdom exists wherever his will is being done. And when he turns, returns to earth, his reign will extend all over the cosmos. But for now, the most important place 
his kingdom reigns is in our hearts in the lives of his disciples. And our jobs as disciples is not to impose a theocracy upon the nations, but to represent Christ before the, those nations. That's because when you are a disciple, you are also an ambassador. You represent King Jesus in his kingdom before all the kingdoms of this earth. And this is not just some mere metaphor. We are as much ambassadors as anybody on Embassy Row in D.C. You're a representative of our king in every place you go and before every community you interact with. That's why the most radical political act you will ever engage in is recognizing Jesus as your king and God. You recognize him as your God and king by submitting your will to his will. You recognize him as your God and king by letting Jesus determine his own identity, his own agenda, and his own schedule. And you recognize him as your God and king by basing your identity on his identity, your agenda on his agenda, and your schedule on his schedule. I've already referenced scripture 16 times in this sermon, but there's one final verse I want us to look at. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, John gives us a picture from the future of the kingdom of Jesus. John says, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne into the Lamb. That can be a picture that includes you. You can be in that crowd someday. You can be standing before the throne of God, waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna. You can be part of the greatest political rally in the history of the universe. And all it takes is for you to respond to the truth of the gospel. Don't miss out. Jesus Christ is king, and the king has come. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come humbly in your presence to kneel before your throne. You are our Messiah and our King. You are our gentle and peaceful brother. You are the King of glory. Help us to lay aside any identity for you that is not yours, any agenda for you that is not your agenda, and any schedule for you that is not your schedule. And then help us to lay aside every identity, agenda, and schedule that we have for our own lives that is not based on what you want for us. We trust in your goodness, Lord. You are merciful and faithful. Let us never hesitate to proclaim you as king and to worship you as Lord. In your holy name we pray. Amen.